0: This is a Triple J podcast.
1: Hack. Hello, Joe Lauder with you for the Hack podcast. Dave's off on some hard-earned rest, is that what you say? So I'm going to be hanging out with you all this week. When you are in high school, were you interested in politics? Did you care about who got elected and also what those people were thinking about issues that you cared about? Well, maybe you would have cared more about it if you were allowed to vote. Today, we're going to find out about the latest campaign to let people vote in elections from 16 years old. Also, a bit later on in the podcast, there are calls for a formal apology and compensation from the Victorian government over how some mental health patients have been treated while they were in care.
2: Hack.
3: This was always going to be a long battle. It was not going to be something that the military would easily give in over. And it's certainly not a fight that the people of Myanmar were going to easily give in.
2: On Triple J.
1: Across the world, there are heaps of humanitarian crises in Sudan, Ukraine, Afghanistan, and there's one going on as well in Myanmar. Myanmar, if you don't know, is a country in Southeast Asia that borders Thailand and used to be called Burma. A couple of years ago, the army took control of the country. They overthrew a democratically elected government, and ever since, things have been going terribly there. International organisations estimate more than a a million people have had to flee. We're going to hear from someone who's done exactly that and whose family in Darwin are urging the federal government to try and help him. Miles Holbrook-Walk has his story.
4: Two years ago, Wanamu's life changed in ways most of us couldn't imagine. He was 15, helping out his grandparents on their farm in Myanmar, in a part of the country that borders Thailand in Southeast Asia. Life wasn't easy for Wanemu, but it was about to get a lot harder.
1: The military made its move in the early hours of the morning. Myanmar is now run by a general after the military deposed the government led by Aung San Suu Kyi.
4: So the military takes over and what follows is this really violent and scary crackdown across the country. Thousands of people are jailed. Many have also been killed. And though the violence is widespread, Wanemu is particularly at risk because he's Karen, an indigenous group in the country that's been targeted by the military for decades. So with things getting hectic, he ran and he made it over the border to Thailand where he's hiding illegally right now. I interviewed him over video call with his cousin and another Karen activist who lives in Darwin. Both fled Myanmar for their safety many years beforehand. They've translated his answers.
5: It's not uh, how young people live because we are in a very small room, five of us. We can't go out, we can't see the world, we are living in fear.
4: Mu also says he's been warned of stories about people caught fleeing Myanmar.
5: There are people who are arrested and being sent back to um, Myanmar where they are tortured and some of them are even killed.
4: His cousin lives up here in Darwin. Her name's Yemi Ma and she's actually paying people in Thailand to keep him safe while he hides. She wants to support him while he waits to hear if Australia will approve a humanitarian visa but it's not something she can afford forever.
0: I cannot, you know, keep supporting them like this uh, forever or in five years or six years, because I have my family and uh, we have a home or, you know, like, to look after, lots of things to pay for.
4: She says he's already been arrested by local police in Thailand and claims they had to bribe those officials to get him freed and stop him being taken back to Myanmar. Uh,
0: The last time when I heard that he got arrested, it was really heartbreaking, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not there, so I cannot help him. And he's only 70 years old and then we don't know what's gonna happen. If the Burmese military or police catch them, they tortures them in a very cruel way.
4: So what's happening in Myanmar is being widely condemned internationally. A lot of countries are saying it's not right, and Australia is one of them. But Karen people in Australia say the support in place isn't good enough, especially when you compare it to how the government supported refugees from other countries.
5: Now there's a hotline for Ukraine refugees or crisis, or there's a hotline for Afghan. This is The lawyers or the organisations, or this is who you need to contact if you have family members you are concerned about. But nothing, and still nothing, for the Myanmar people.
4: Sherry Shui is Karen herself and says the government needs to get serious about offering asylum. She's helping about 30 people who are Karen and have applied for humanitarian visas and they've been waiting for years just to hear whether or not they'll be allowed into the country.
5: They are in different stages, but I would say the minimum that we have, we are waiting for is at least two years.
4: What's really frustrating for Sherry is that Darwin needs people to come and work right now, especially in the kind of farming work that lots of Karen people, including Wanemu, have done their whole lives.
5: Darwin is in need of people working, you know, and the work that they need are like seasonal workers or farmhand or people in horticultural, agricultural sectors. And these are the works that we are used to. These are the work that we've been
4: doing all our lives. This story is part of a bigger problem facing refugees trying to come to Australia. At the moment, there's more than 30,000 humanitarian visa applications the government is still yet to process. And Wanemu is just one of them.
5: We are being killed, being tortured, being raped every day. That Australian doesn't act or doesn't do anything in this scenario.
1: So we are just letting people die.
2: Hack on Triple J.
1: Miles Holbrook walked with that story. In a statement to Hack, the Department of Immigration says that it's recently designated Myanmar Nationals in Australia as priority caseloads in our onshore protection visa program. It says any person, including Myanmar Nationals, who believe they meet the requirements for a humanitarian visa and wish to seek Australia's assistance can make an application. And priority is given to the most vulnerable applicants. Now, I've got Graham Tom with me. He's Australia's Refugee Advisor for Amnesty International. Thanks so much for coming on Graham. Graeme. Thanks,
2: Sarah.
1: Just to start with, we just heard in Miles' story about WA's situation um, that he's waiting as he waits to hear about his refugee claim. Um, How troubling is it for you to hear the danger he's in and is it common that people are waiting in pretty dire situations to get an answer about their refugee situation?
2: Well, I think, sadly, it's not uncommon. I think, you know, the situation both in Myanmar and then for those who have fled the violence there is horrendous. You know, we know that since the coup, 3,000 people have been killed. We know they're bombing civilians on the border, um, terrorising them, essentially. And yet when people are forced to flee, whether it's Rohingya into Bangladesh or Karen and Kareni and others, fleeing into Thailand, there is not a welcome mat for them. It's actually quite scary and they do risk being forcibly returned and if they are captured as your story highlighted quite clearly, you know, the, the consequences are absolutely dire. So people are in hiding. They don't know what to do. They need to get UNHCR protection if they're going to be referred for resettlement but that means coming out of hiding and running that risk of being caught by the police or the military. So, you know, it is a terrifying situation for those people. How
1: long on average are people waiting to hear about asylum claims for requests to come to
2: Australia? Well, it really varies and it depends on the country and uh, it depends on where you've fled to. uh, And it depends, you know, as you highlighted in, in your package, the response from the Department for Immigration was around people from Myanmar, refugees who are seeking asylum in Australia. They're going to be prioritised. So that's great. You know, if you've managed to get out of, of Myanmar and get to Australia to seek asylum, you get prioritised. The problem is if you get out and you only get as far as Thailand or India or Bangladesh, you're in real trouble. And it's both being processed by Australia, but these countries are also not allowing exit visas. Mm. So that's adding to the length of time. So Australia, we know the US is in a similar position. A number of people have been accepted by the US to go and be resettled there. And yet Thailand is refusing to grant exit visas to let them leave. And we've had similar arguments in India and historically that's what Bangladesh has argued. So, even when you're so close, you think you've got a visa, you think you've got a solution, the government won't let you out because they'll argue if they let you out, more people will become. you know it's this pull factors argument that we hear all the time. So even the lucky ones are, are experiencing delays at the moment. so yeah, as you've heard, it it can take years. people you know fleeing other conflicts it it might be a, a better situation depending on how the host government responds to your situation. If they want you to go, you'll get an exit visa and you can be in Australia quite quickly. But for people, unfortunately, uh, Korean refugees stuck in Thailand, there are just layers and layers of difficulties that they're facing at the moment.
1: And Graham, how many refugees does Australia take on each year? And how, how does that square with the number of people who are trying or applying to come to Australia?
2: Well, I think that's the other big issue. I mean, sadly, under the the cloud of COVID, the government slashed uh, nearly 5,000 places from the humanitarian program. And while we did see a number reinstated for Afghans, um, we're still looking at 17,750 a year coming to Australia through our humanitarian program. That's both referred by UNHCR, but as you've heard, also being sponsored by family here. When you've got maybe 6,000 places for family from countries like Afghanistan, from Iraq, from Myanmar, you know, we're talking about tens of thousands of applicants uh, for only 6,000 places. So sadly, Mm. it, it really is a bit of a lottery, even for really compelling cases it becomes very difficult. And, you know, one of the things that Amnesty has been pushing for is for Australia to increase its humanitarian program. You know, countries like Canada have upped their program to well over 30,000 places. The US is upping its program to over 100,000 places. You know, there is a huge need at the moment. And sadly, Australia is just not stepping Mm. up at the moment.
1: Graham, I really appreciate you coming on Hack and having a chat about this.
2: My pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: That's Graham Tom and he's Australia's refugee advisor for Amnesty International. On the text line, someone says, I lived there in Myanmar before the coup. It was a country with so much hope. This is absolutely heartbreaking.
2: Hack. Here in Victoria, we've been dealing with a system that's been overwhelmed in mental health for years.
1: Categorically failed to live up to expectations. That operates in crisis mode.
2: And far too many Victorians are falling to their death. On Triple J.
1: Hey, I'm Joe Lauder. I'm going to be joining you on Hack all this week. Now, in a minute, we're going to be talking about voting for people who are aged 16 to 18. We're already getting heaps of opinions on this. Someone says, if you're old enough to be able to work, contribute to the economy and file taxes, you're old enough to vote. And someone else says, children should not be given the right to vote. They are too easily influenced. That's going to be coming up a bit later in the show. But right now... We're going to be talking about mental health in Victoria on the back of a really alarming report that's come out that shows patients being tied down, isolated and forced to go through treatments against their will or in some cases experiencing violence. These are some of the experiences of mental health patients that have been outlined in a new report today that focuses on the harm from Victoria's mental health system. This report is calling for an official apology and compensation for the damage that people have experienced as part of the system. The report's been released today by the report's authors, even though they were commissioned to do it for the Victorian government. And one of the report's lead authors is Simon Cattle. Simon is a mental health consultant and someone with lived experience. Simon, thanks so much for coming on, Hack. Thanks for
3: having me.
1: Just to start with, Simon, when we talk about harms in the mental health system and how it can sometimes hurt and damage patients, can you give me some examples of what we're talking about there?
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess there's lots of harms in the mental health system, but um, as a community, we often don't see them. We don't see them because the mental health institutions are closed institutions, so that hasn't really changed over, over recent decades. We don't see the harms because... People aren't believed often when they talk about it, and we don't see them because there's so many barriers to people um, accessing or getting justice. In saying that, those of us working in the system, and in particular those who've used the system, know that consumers and survivors are still in a mental health system that commits gross human rights violations. That means they're systemic and they're discriminatory. Uh, That is built into our laws that allow people to be secluded, detained, restrained and be required to take medication or electroshock uh, treatment that they don't want. It means in Victoria, evidence suggests that people who use clinical mental health services die on average 30 years younger than the general population, in part due to the medications. And that's just the tip of the iceberg as it faces consumers. But we often forget about the impacts on families, carers and supporters. Um, When the system steps back and it doesn't, I guess, do the job that it was meant to do, families and carers often don't have any good options to support someone they care about. Their experience of the system is that they, I guess, turn into like mini-me clinicians that have to monitor the medication of their loved one rather than just be their mother, brother or sister. And they witness trauma and they may experience trauma. And that's way harder if you're someone who's, who's younger um, uh, supporting a child or a young person supporting an adult who's in distress. So there is a lot of un- unresolved yeah. and really unacknowledged harm here.
1: And you did mention that this is happening legally. How is that the case? How are mental health patients covered under law here?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm talking about Victoria, but in reality, all of Australia's mental health laws violate human rights. So so we're signatories to the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, but we've kind of switched the goalposts by making what they call an interpretive declaration, which basically means uh, we as a a country say forced treatment, seclusion, restraint, guardianship, a whole range of things. We say that's human rights compliant when it's 100% not. In reality, though, like so, you've got these mental health laws that I guess aren't human rights compliant. But then, in reality, even though the mental, even those mental health laws aren't complied with, so people have basic rights under those mental health laws, but even those rights aren't upheld. So it's a a double discrimination. And I I previously came on Hack, probably about six months ago, and highlighted that there'd been twelve thousand human rights complaints here in Victoria without a compliance notice, without enforcement that hasn't changed. In fact, the number's now over 14,000. So, I mean, it's it's bad. It's it's quite, yeah, it's really bad. Yeah. As
1: as part of this report, you're calling for an apology and a restorative justice process. Can you just quickly tell me a bit about what that would look like?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I'll start with the, the restorative justice process, because we were really intentional about uh, how we sequence things. Uh, I guess the thing we would say is you can't just solve these problems on the books or through policy. You need to to change hearts and minds. Um, Restorative justice, I guess it's a process that brings the problem into the community and we solve it together. Um, What that would look like is consumers and carers are are centred to speak um, about the harms that they've experienced and where appropriate, and we provide lots of guidance on how to do that, Mm -hmm. uh, mental health sector representatives and government representatives can be present, hear and respond to those harms so we would do it in communities not in government house um and if you do that you've you've kind of changed communities but then you'll also have a record of harms and it's that record of harms that the that the government needs to respond to with an apology and mm. so that i guess provides some closure for some people but also a pathway forward that we're not going to do it again
1: on the text Sign, someone says, I work in the mental health system in Victoria and I have lived experience as well as a carer. I constantly wonder of the harm I contribute to as being part of the system, even though I'm trying myself not to perpetuate harm and I'm doing my trying to do my best by consumers. And someone else says, it's also really difficult when you're mentally unwell to advocate for yourself. So it's no wonder that it takes so long for us to hear about these awful kinds of situations. Simon, thank you so much for coming on Hack to chat about this and thank you for doing this work and shining a light on this area. I really appreciate it. it.
3: Thank you. Please visit the website and share it.
1: And Do you want to tell us what the website is?
3: Yes, so it's livedexperiencejustice.au.
1: And that's Simon Cattell and he's a mental health consultant and he is also one of the report's authors.
3: Young people deserve a seat at the table. They deserve to have a say in the future that they will inherit. On Triple J. At
1: 16 years old, you can work, you can pay taxes, you can join the army, you can even go to jail. So, what about voting? Politicians make decisions all the time that will affect the lives of people under 16, especially on some of these tricky intergenerational issues like climate change and housing affordability. So, should they also decide who's in power and who's making those decisions? In November last year, New Zealand's highest court ruled that the country's voting age of 18 was discriminatory. And they ruled that the government, and so since then, after that ruling, the government's been considering legislation to lower the voting age to 16. And a similar conversation is happening here in Australia. In Parliament House today, a group of MPs have launched a campaign to let 16-year-olds vote in federal elections. And Shalila Madora was there and she has the details for us.
0: 16, 17-year-olds are given so many responsibilities. We can work, drive, pay taxes and so on. Year 12 student Isabel Calder thinks young people are getting a raw deal out of democracy. And so we really do believe that we should be given this right to vote when we can already have those responsibilities and already contributing to our economy. Year 12 student Amelia condon Sernoff agrees. She's already involved in politics and thinks it sucks that her voice isn't being heard. For me, I'm really involved with, like, climate action and they, like, want to create change and, you know, want to push action within Parliament, yet they don't have the right to vote. Amelia and Isabel are just two of the young people behind the Make It 16 campaign, which launched at Parliament House today.
3: My name is Archie Coppola, I'm 16 years old. Um, We're here to try to lower the voting age. We want MPs to hear us.
0: The campaign aims to make voting compulsory for 16 and 17-year-olds, but with the exception that they don't get fined if they fail to show up on polling day. It also wants more civics education in schools so that young people understand Australia's democratic process.
4: Because at the end of the day, we're the people that will inherit the consequences or benefits of what our governments do right now.
0: A few pollies fronted up at the launch, like independents Monique Ryan and Andrew Wilkie.
5: It doesn't seem right that we're not giving young people a chance to participate in democracy. The reality is that they're going to be affected by the decisions that we make in this place.
2: No one in this country has a greater stake in our future than younger Australians. They're going to be here long after people like me are dead and buried.
0: And Greens MP Stephen Bates, who introduced a bill in February to lower the voting age to 16, which hasn't been debated yet.
3: So this bill is is currently sitting before the House of Representatives. I will keep pushing this campaign for as long as I am in this place.
0: But there were no representatives from either Labor or the Coalition at the press conference. If the major parties choose not to listen to, to this call, they do so at their own peril because those young people
5: who are now 15, 16 or 17 will, in three or four years time, be 18,
0: 19 or 20. And this comes as younger voters drift further and further away from the major parties.
3: And it's because young people don't see the major parties as having solutions for young people in the crises that we're facing. And we're seeing an entire generation flocking to the Greens and to independence on the crossbench.
0: And look, this isn't the first time we've had this conversation. A joint parliamentary inquiry looked at lowering the voting age, but on a voluntary basis, not compulsory, back in 2018. That distinction was the sticking point. That inquiry reported back saying lowering the voting age wasn't a good idea. Make It 16 campaigner Ravin Desai says this time will be different.
4: The main reason why, that at the last time this was debated, There was actually no national campaign formed by young people to actually reinforce the fact that we should lower the voting age.
1: Hack on Triple J. Shalala Maduro reporting. Isabel on the text line says, no taxation without representation. Someone else says, the voting age should be 16 to 80 from my experience with grandparents, parents and children. Someone says, lower the voting age to 16, but make it optional. Compulsory voting from 18. Interesting. Well, I've got Intifar Chowdhury with me. She's from the ANU School of Politics and International Relations, and her research looks at whether young people are turning away from democracy. She's with me now. Intifar, thanks for coming on Hack. To start with, what is the problem, would you say, that we're trying to fix here?
6: I think it is about uh, young people having the cognitive capacity and the political uh, sophistication to be able to participate and play important um, parts in society in all other aspects, uh, give it, say taxation or, or military participation, but not really being able to vote or influence um, the decisions or the policies that impact their lives, I think it's about giving them a voice to be able to influence and uh, influence the decision-making or the policy-making that impact their lives.
1: So I think that's sort of the issue at hand. Would lowering the voting age to 16, do you think it would change politics and how do you think it would change the politics that we're seeing in Australia at the moment?
6: Well, if we are talking about political participation, we do know that the youngest age group, um, eighteen to twenty-four, uh, the participation rate is is the lowest among all other age groups. So, lowering it to sixteen or seventeen, there, there is the, the the case that's being made is that that's going to um, invigorate participation. But there is also this mixed evidence about how that's going to come about because there is talks about how young people may not be as interested in politics as as older people, but What I see from my research, that's not true. Young people are passionate about political issues, but the way they engage is quite different from older generations and in different platforms Um, that need not necessarily be just the ballot box. Given all these issues such as climate change, housing affordability, um, rising costs of living that directly impact young people, there, the case being made is that uh, this is going to encourage young people to come to the ballot box and hopefully uh, take up uh, this uh, civic duty of voting.
1: We also heard that the proposal today would include a civics component at school, so there will be lessons around like, preferential voting and the voting system. Is that something that's lacking in schools at the moment, would you say? I would say yes, it's
6: not, it's not good enough. Because uh, we do know that younger generations tend to be quite progressive, but there is a bit of, okay, my peers are doing this, my peers think this about X, Y, and Z, so I'm going to think the same. And that's what's kind of happening with support for the voice referendum as well. Just to give an example. But then if you really go into asking, okay, do you actually know what this means? Do you know how this is going to come about? Do you know when someone proposes a bill, where does it go? Do you know
1: who votes? Do you know how it's going to affect you? Well, they don't. I feel like and, you could ask people over eighteen the same thing, and a lot of people wouldn't and know. And they, those they
6: won't. <laughs> exactly. They won't as well. Um, so, and it starts from school, right? Yeah. So, if you think about my generation or or older generations, we didn't have a, a civic comp- like a good civic component, a good understanding of of politics and how how politics works in this country, because we are quite special in the sense that we've got compulsory voting and it works quite well. We've got preferential voting. We've got uh, proportional
1: representation in the Senate. But what does that, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) What do you think about the concerns around this, that have been raised around this proposal about the fact that if um, voting between 16 and 18 was only voluntary, that it could potentially water down our compulsory voting system and that's very concerning. Do you think there's any truth in that? Is that something you're concerned about?
6: I think there is a fair bit of concern there and that concern stems from... There is move away from political parties, right? But this move away from political parties can dangerously also be a move away from politics if not addressed properly because think about these people they are impressionable they are very young right oh I hate politicians could turn into I hate politics which we don't want that is a little bit of a concern what compulsory voting does is even if people are not fans of their local member or or their federal member or politicians is still... That kind of forces you to participate in the political culture that we have in Australia. Like, you kind of have to make a decision.
1: The argument that sometimes comes up against lowering the voting age to 16 is that young people, you know, around 16 aren't fully developed and they aren't ready for that responsibility. And I guess this is a question around competency, about engaging in democracy, I guess if that's the case, is there also an argument for putting a cap on an age limit of voting, say like 90, if we're saying in terms of like people's capacity? <laughs> yeah, that's a very interesting point. Look, I I probably will not engage
6: with the 90 uh, <laughs> bit because I, I don't have any evidence, nor do I have the experience to be able to talk about um, the upper cap.
1: Um, But it's kind of like just a number as well, right?
6: Yeah, it's just a number, but like that point about... Political competencies. I think that is not a valid argument, particularly for this, um, for the youngest generation.
1: They they know what they're talking about. Trust me. So um, I don't think that is a valid argument. It'll be very interesting to watch. Intifa, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you for having me. That was Intifa Chowdhury from the ANU School of Politics and International Relations. Her research is really focused on whether young people are turning away from democracy. We had so many messages about that on the text line that we ran out of time for. Blake said, just make voting optional for 16 to 18-year-olds. Simple as that. Someone else, Marty, says, if the age of criminal responsibility sees 14-year-old kids being tried like adults, surely lowering the voting age to 16 isn't too much of a stretch of logic. And Pedro says, hey, Joe, plenty politicians aren't competent. I'll catch you tomorrow on the Hack podcast. See ya. Hack
3: on Triple Jack.